Thank you. My pleasure. Well, hello. I just want to start out by saying that I am a sight for sore eyes. Oh, no, sorry. You're a sight for sore eyes. I knew I got that one wrong. It's just, oh. So great to be here. For those of you who don't know me, uh, uh, my name is Ron, and I uh, was lead pastor here for just over eight years. Finished up about a year ago. Uh, and don't worry, I'm not here regularly. It's all good. Uh, for those of you do, who do know me, uh, we are in for uh, a treat today as we look at the end of chapter 3 of John. I, uh, I'm not sure what I was thinking when I agreed to speak on this weekend. Obviously, I was, um, was enamored by the opportunity to come back. And by the way, let me just start by saying this. Can I uh, just take a moment to congratulate you on your discernment of Pastor Matt as your lead pastor? <clears throat> yeah, so good. I shouldn't even just say your lead pastor. He's my lead pastor as well. And because uh, this is our home church, continues to be our home church. And I just think that uh, it's a great determination on your part. You can see the work of the Holy Spirit in that. And he's a man who loves the word. He loves this church. He loves you, his people. And, and uh, anyways, it's just so good. But having said that, I'm not sure why I agreed to speak on this particular weekend. Because this is the time change weekend. And, um, and also, uh, it's the end of the gospel, of the third chapter of the gospel of John, and it's a very interesting passage. First of all, the time change. I really should have listened to Sherry last night, and most of you are saying, yeah, well, we could have told you that years ago. <laughs> but I really should have listened to Sherry last night when at 10 o'clock she said, you should probably go to bed because it's really 11. And at 10 o'clock I said, no, it's really only 10 o'clock. And then when 11 o'clock came, she said, you really should go to bed because it's really 12. And I said, no, no, it's really not 12, it's only 11. And that was true when I went to bed at 12, which was really 1. And then when I got up at 5, it was really 4. So I've only had like two hours sleep, I think. I may have I missed like 16 hours sleep in all of that. I'm not sure how that happened. Anyways, it did. And then the other thing was I agreed to preach on this particular passage. And Matt, uh, he emailed me, asked if I'd preach on this particular date. Here's the passage. And I didn't look at it until a little later down the road. When I did look at it, I said to myself, oh, my word, what have I agreed to? Um, because this is a passage that if you were to look it up in biblical commentaries, of which I have many, you would discover that they say exactly nothing about this passage. Ah, there's the odd word here or there, and it's because it's, it's, it's really quite a, a bit of a challenging passage. Uh, and challenging not in what it's trying to convey. It's actually very clear in what it's trying to convey if you take the time to take it apart, but challenging to preach. Because you've got to take some time to talk about grammar. And yes, we are going to talk about present active indicatives. Because in this little passage alone, and it's like so beautiful, this little passage from verse 31 to 36, so, so six verses, there are over a dozen present active indicatives. I'm not going to give them all to you. I'm going to let you search them on your own. I know you hardly wait to do that when you get home. But I want to get into it. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, let me tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I, uh, I am very fond of a particular program called Dragon's Den, which is the Canadian version of the successful program Shark Tank. Um, and in the, the program Dragon's Den or Shark Tank, people uh, come before these dragons or these sharks, these business uh, individuals, and they try to convince them to buy in to a product. They try and pitch a product. Uh, I really enjoy hearing the pitches, hearing what people do, but my favorite part of the show is those, those rare segments where they actually show you the success story. You ever seen that? 
right? They'll, they'll show you uh, some person who actually went with a dragon or, or a shark. Or, but more, more to the point, my favorite part is when they show you a success story of someone who actually went it alone, where the dragon said, this really isn't worth my while, it's a, it's a dumb idea or it's a stupid concept, and they decide to run with it anyways, and they come back as a huge success, and the dragon's missed out. Well, in a sense, I think that's what John is doing here in this passage. Now, to be clear, he's not pandering Jesus or he's not trying to present the product of Christianity for your consideration. But the end goal of this from the Gospel of John is the proclamation of a person. He wants us to understand who Jesus truly is. And that's what he does in this, these verses. He, he totally melts it down and you have the condensed version of the, of the first segment of the Gospel of John. Regardless of how you respond, he would say, these truths about Jesus stand. Regardless of what anyone says, these claims of Jesus are true. He wants us to understand this morning the superlative person of Jesus. That Jesus stands supreme above all others. I had a seminary professor once who reminded me in a class that that with which you win them is that to which you've won them. In other words, what he was saying was this. If you sell people a cheap gospel, the best you can expect for them is to rise to the fullness of a cheap gospel. So all you you ever tell people about is, is Jesus who is warm and fuzzy and cuddly, who loves you, but doesn't actually call you to live differently, the best you can ever expect from people who believe in that kind of Jesus is to love the Jesus who's warm and fuzzy and cuddly and then go off and do life on their own. And so often church sells a cheap gospel or cheap grace, and we fail to spell out the fullness of what it means to follow Jesus or who he is. We don't proclaim the fullness of his majesty. And quite frankly, we don't because it's hard to do. He's so superlative, so superior to anything that we can even put into words. But Scripture does this when it tells us about Jesus, and our passage does this. It proclaims that Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And whether you like it or not, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. Like it or not. That Jesus is the very word, actually the breath, we'll look at that, of God. That his truth reigns supreme over every other truth. And it's time we caught on to that and got our truths in line with the truth of Jesus. That he is one with the Father and one with the Holy Spirit. He is the very word of God. That he is the final authority. There is no authority better than Jesus that trumps Jesus. Some of us have this idea that our personal authority or our personal perspective actually trumps the biblical perspective. I have news for you this morning. John has news for you this morning. You're wrong. There will come a day you'll be held to account. That Jesus is the orientation of all that exists and everything is moving towards him and for him. He is not merely Jesus meek and mild. He is Jesus all-powerful, awe-inspiring, and one who should cause us to bend our knee. And so today, as we spend some time in the Word, as I have the privilege of speaking to people I love, my goal is not to convince you of the superlative nature of Jesus, of His superiority, His supremacy, and His ultimate authority. That's not my goal. It's not to convince you. My goal, like the Gospel writer John, is to simply declare it to you. 
and to proclaim to you the superlative person of Jesus and let it stand by itself because it does. Oh, so rich. And so as we launch into the passage, let me just remind you of the purpose of John's gospel. This is why he wrote it. From John chapter 20. These things were written, John says, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by, le- by believing you may have life in his name. And so the, the bottom line is going to be this today. What you do with Jesus will determine whether you have eternal life or not. It's the bottom line. So let's get into the passage. If you have your Bibles, open them up. If you don't, how come you don't have them? Right? You don't cross the border without your passport. You should come to church with your Bible. Just a little hint. And by the way, it sh- I know it shows up in the screen and that's beautiful, but you're not allowed to put highlighter in the screen or, ri- or write in the margins. So bring your Bible. Use your app, whatever. It's all good. We're into the 21st century here. Except for you with blackberries. Who said that? (laughs) Unbelievable. Perhaps this is why Matt hasn't asked me to preach until now. John chapter 3, starting at verse 31. He who comes from above, John says, is above all. And he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So let's spend some time unpacking what John wants us to understand this morning. And there's a lot of it here, folks. There's a lot of it here. But I do love the idea that there's a time change because I have an extra hour, which is great. First of all, I want, I want to spend some time... Actually, let me unpack the passage for you a little bit. Here, this is where I'm going to go today. I want to talk to you about the superlative origin of Jesus. The superlative origin of Jesus. I want to talk to you about the superlative person of Jesus. Then the superlative authority of Jesus. And then the pivotal determination about Jesus. When I uh, sent my outline to Pastor Matt, he said, you know, I should get a thesaurus so I actually can keep up with you in the words that you use. And the reason I use the word superlative is because it is the best of the best. You could say superior origin of Jesus, but he's not superior. He's superlative. He's much better than anything. Remember, there is nothing higher than him. You could say superior person. He is a superior person, but he's so much more than a superior person. He is the superlative person. You could say this is his superior authority, but that would suggest that there's an authority over him. There isn't. He is the superlative authority. And that then requires us to have a pivotal determination. So as John speaks, he actually takes some time to pick up where John the Baptist was speaking last week, where John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. And then what John, the gospel writer, does is he actually picks up on that and says, here's why. 
Let me summarize chapter 3 for you, John says. Here's why. So let's start with the superlative origin of Jesus. Verse 31 through 33. He says this in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Well, the first thing I want you to understand here is that that what John wants us to understand is the superiority of who Jesus is and where he comes from. He who comes from above, John says. And we tend to think, at least I tend to think, in terms of hierarchy and rank. You know, the person who is above is above all the others. Like the lead pastor is above all the associate team. Or or the president is above all the vice president who's above all the other people in the thing. But that's not what John has in mind here. He's not talking about hierarchy or rank. The idea here is very different. He's talking about Jesus being superior in very origin, very person. John wants to set a a critical contrast between Jesus and everybody else, everything else. This critical distinction when discussing Jesus is to understand he is superlative in his origin. He's as different as diamonds are to dirt. He's as different as eating a steak is to eating a bowl full of maggots. He's as different as the eternal and transcendent is to the finite and temporal. See, John says he is above, or he is from above. The word here, above, is a very unique word. It means that place of superiority, that place of time, that first place, that place that is the source of all that is. And so what John is saying is, the one who is from the source of all that is, is above all. The word is, by the way, is the first of the present active indicatives, and it's a beautiful present active indicative because it sets the tone for who Jesus is. The one who is from above is above all. But is isn't a temporal piece. Present active indicative. He is right now. He always has been and he always will be above all. He continues to be above all. He is above all. And the the second above again is a very different word. If you've been in my office this week, you would have heard me say to the staff many times, I think English sucks because it does. It's a sucky language. Because it says here, he who comes from above is above. Well, yeah, thank you, Captain Obvious. I get it. But that's not what it's saying. It's saying the one who's superior or who comes from a superior origin, from, from that place from which we all come originally, that one is superior in every way above all. He's far excelling. He is superior in status. He is unmatched, untouched, unbeatable. He is surpassing in every way. Let me paraphrase what we've read so far. The one, that is Jesus, who is from eternity, from the very source of all that is, is as vastly superior in place and time and person. He is and always has been and always will far exceed everything else. Wow! But in case you're thick like me, or you have Dutch roots, he makes this wonderful contrast, so we'll get it. He says, he who comes from above is above all. But he wants to make sure we get it, so here's what he says. He who belongs to the earth 
is of the earth, or he who, who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But actually, again, the English is sucky. It translates it so poorly from the original anyways. Because here's what the original says. He who is out of the earth, or could be translated the land or the dirt, the one who comes out of the dirt is out of the dirt. Yes. And he speaks dirt. Isn't that beautiful? Does it sound familiar at all? Right? Doesn't it, doesn't, for those of you who know the Bible at all, doesn't it make you want to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 when we have the creation account of when God creates Adam? And what does it say in Genesis chapter 2? That the Lord formed man out of the, yeah, the dust of the earth, and he breathed into him life. So what's this saying here? Here's literally how it translates. It's so beautiful. He who is dirt is dirt. And he speaks of dirt. And the point is really simply this. That the best of humankind is dirt compared to the superlative person of Jesus. We are finite, John wants us to understand. And apart from a spiritual rebirth, we are destined to return to the dirt. It is what we are, it is what we know, and it is why we need Jesus. Listen to Paul on the same topic in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, that is Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are heaven. What's John talking? What, or sorry, what's Paul talking about? He says, "Look, apart from Jesus, we are dirt." That's the, that's the sum total. I wish I had this huge pile of dirt here, right? That'd be beautiful. That's who we are apart from Jesus. But what John, Paul says is that when we encounter the man who's from heaven, we are also from heaven. We, we're transformed. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, so also we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. There's two categories of people that, that John is relating to us and Paul affirms. There are people who are born of the earth, earth, people who don't know anything of Jesus, who are just dirt, and those who are born from heaven. And by the way, if you go back to John chapter 3, verse 3, where Jesus has this wonderful phrase that's used here, and he says, you must be born again. You know what it literally means? Born from above. Huh. How's that happen? I know how that happens. God actually sends someone from above so that we can be born from above who can speak life into dirt. Does it sound remarkably biblical? Well, surprising because it's from Scripture. And what it is, it really becomes a reiteration of what Jesus declares a little earlier in John 3, 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of dirt is dirt. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. 
See, Jesus' infinite origin and our finite foundation have profound implications for what we can know about God and what we can also in turn know about spiritual truth. Because here's the reality. A finite creature knows nothing about God apart from God revealing himself to him. Right? If I had a pile of dirt here, just pretend there's a pile of dirt, and I asked it, to tell me all about Tom. How much could the dirt tell me about Tom? Diddly squat. Why? Why? Because it's dirt, folks. Uh huh. Right? <laughs> you know? What does dirt know about anything? Nothing. Right? It's made up of the dung of worms. I mean, that's not good. And this is the important part that we're called to catch. As finite creatures, our knowledge of God only comes through revelation from God. And that's why John reiterates again, he who comes from heaven is above all and bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Remember, that very verse again can be translated this way. He who comes from heaven bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one bears testimony. You could actually leave out the is above all, because it, it, it he's reiterating for sure, and it's, in the, it's there, but the point is simply this. It takes someone to come from heaven to reveal to us the truth of heaven can be read, he who comes from heaven bears witness to what he has seen and heard. It's, this another, it's another declaration of the superlative person of Jesus, his superlative origins. He comes from heaven. And John wants to make sure we get it, in case we didn't get it the first time. He comes from heaven. And as such, he bears witness to what he has seen and what he has heard. See, again, I want to say to you, apart from God's revelation, he is unknowable. Apart from revealing himself to us, he is incomprehensible. John wants us to know, he wants us to understand that it is Jesus alone. Catch that. It is Jesus alone who can reveal to us first-hand testimony about who God is. The phrase here is, he witnesses to what he has seen. And by the way, guess what verb tense it is? Yes, I knew you would know. It is another present active indicative. And so he witnesses, does he witness once? No, 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 no. He has always witnessed to the truth of heaven. From eternity past, right through to this very moment when he's witnessing to you again through his word. And for all eternity, Jesus is the only one who can declare to us the truth of heaven because he comes from heaven. He witnesses, he gives Evidence, he declares a first-hand knowledge, a direct insight, a conveyance of the truth of who God is. An ongoing proclamation of truth that was as true 2,000 years ago as it was 4,000 years ago when God spoke to, 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 um, to, to Moses and then before that when he spoke to Abraham and before that when he spoke to Adam and, and from, from here on into eternity. Only Jesus is able to make this proclamation because he's the only one who is from above and is above all. He comes from heaven. And what John does here is he reiterates what Jesus says about himself in verse 11 of chapter 3. Listen to these words. And by the way, every time you see Jesus say, truly, truly, what, he, what, what Jesus is saying is, 
want you to rest everything you are on this. It's the amen, amen. Truly, truly, with certainty and assuredness, I say to you, you can bank your future on this, Jesus says. I say to you, we speak of what we know, meaning himself, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimonies. Talking to Nicodemus. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe when I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. What's Jesus saying? Look, read all the books you want about people who died and saw, saw God and all that kind of stuff. It's dirt trying to tell you what they saw. You want to really know what heaven's like? Talk to me. Not me, Jesus, right? I haven't been there. Hope, well, I know I'm going someday. You want to know what heaven's like, Jesus would say? Talk to the source. Speculation about God, apart from first-hand knowledge of God, is sheer, ignorant presumption. It's the substance of dust. But revelation of God, declared by God, becomes a manifestation, John tells us, of grace and truth. And it carries the authenticity of heaven. And so here's what I want you to understand. That all religions, every religion apart from Jesus, are at best manufactured mud pies. You can argue with them all you want. It doesn't change the truth. Again, I wish I had a big pile of dirt and a big bowl of water and I'd make you a mud pie. And I'd even cover it in whipped cream and say, here, take a big bite of this. And you'd bite into it and you'd say, mmm, that tastes just like chocolate cream pie. And I'd say, no, it's dirt. Because it is. Dress it up any way you want to. Dirt is still dirt. Revelation apart from Jesus is nothing but manufactured mud pies. And all religions, all of the religions apart from Jesus, are ignorant of what constitutes the divine nature, the divine character, and the divine will. It is Jesus alone who has God come down. That's what John wants us to get. Believe it or not, it's true. It's only in Jesus that we discover that God reaches down and reveals himself to us. He gives us first-hand knowledge. It's only in Jesus that we come to understand that God humbles himself and at great personal expense offers us rescue from sin and death and the dirt that we are. It's only Jesus, in Jesus that we discover that God condescends. He stoops to our level. And becomes one of us, God incarnate. He reaches for us so that we might reach out to him and discover grace. And apart from Jesus, I'll say it again, every religion proclaims that humanity, that which is formed of dirt and dust, must attain to the divine in helpless and hopeless ignorance of what he's reaching towards. I wish I had a big scale here. I wish I had a lot of stuff this morning. I wish I had a Maserati, but that's a different story. And a yacht while we're at it, but that's another story. 
If you were to take a scale, a balance, and on one side pile all the religions of the world, they would tell you exactly the same thing with the exception of Jesus. All of them would say to you, if you, if you break it down, that it is the duty of man to, to discover the divine. We, that is dust and dirt, are required to reach into heaven. And that it's so hard to do. For some of them, they would say, you keep coming back again and again and again. You want to make sure you get it right, because if you mess up, you're going to go back to a lower state. But eventually, if you just keep working hard enough, you might get to the divine. It's Jesus who alone who says, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. The divine comes down to you and tips the balance. And all you need to do is get on board. See, because God knows that we are dirt. And dirt can never become divine unless God breathes into it his truth. That's why Jesus said in John 3.16, heard it a million times, but he wants us to get it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in the Son is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What's John's point? Jesus is a superlative witness from heaven, sent by God to reveal himself to us. Here's the second point. Jesus is a superlative person, the superlative person of Jesus. Listen to verse 34 and 35. He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. And what is amazing here again is the use of this wonderful um, verb tense. You may have heard of it before. It's the, um, what was it again? That's right, the present active indicative. Once again, three times in just these two little verses, he says, let me make sure you get it. It's like, us, you know, this is better than the, the birth of your firstborn child when you discover this kind of stuff. Only moderately, but it is. And I'm in trouble later. What you discover in these two verses is a profound wonderful mystery, a Trinitarian formula that, that John wants us to make sure we do not miss for a moment. Because to miss this is to miss who Jesus is. See, John speaks of the superlative person of Jesus. Now, I want you to remember, if you can just back up the bus a little bit here. Let me just pull back the page here. Uh, it, in the English, it reads verse 34 and 35, right? Now, We've already established English is a sucky language, and so just keep that in mind as we look at this, because in the, Eng the original, it's, it's framed differently. And I think that's the problem with the English is it actually doesn't help us understand. I mean, it's good, but it's just not great. Is that fair to say? Just nod your head with me, because I'm actually saying it, so it's good. Thank you. <clears throat> the chapter and verse 
outline was put in about 1,500 years after Scripture was written so that you would know where I am when I'm pointing things out. Look at verse 15, look at verse 21, that kind of idea. But here, I think the guy got it wrong. Let me just read to you verse 34 and 35 again. He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he who God has sent gives the Spirit to Jesus without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. If you read the English, it could suggest that it's Jesus who gives the Spirit without measure. That's not what the passage is trying to say. Jesus does give the Spirit, but this is not about Jesus giving us the Spirit. This is about the Father giving Jesus the Spirit. So anyways, with that in mind, let's press into it. First of all, the thing I discover here is that Jesus is the very Word of God. He's the the breath of God. Catch this in the English. He who utters the words of God. That's, That's the English phrase for it here. And that should be clear in us. Jesus speaks. When he speaks, he's speaking the Word of God. But it's not as if Jesus is reading a script or he's merely a messenger. That's what the passage does not want us to understand from this. He is so much more. It's not that he speaks or repletes or declares the message. He's not merely the messenger. This is how it actually reads. The one sent by God, the breath of God speaks. Think a difference? Not merely the words of God speaks, the very breath of God speaks. So, for those of you who are married or dating, do you remember the first time you were with your sweetie and they leaned over and they whispered in your ear and you could actually feel the tingle of their breath on your ear. Do you remember that? For those of you who are old, think way back. And for those of you who still have no memory of that, just just imagine you're putting your hearing aid in. It's kind of like that. right? You can feel that. It's like, oh yeah, there's something there. That's what it's saying here. Not the hearing aid part. But that sense of, of, of an actual, tangible feeling of the whisper of God. The very breath of God. The one sent by God, the breath of God speaks. What John is conveying to us here is the divine nature, the superlative person of Jesus. He is the divine, not only messenger of God, he is the divine message of God. It speaks to His divine authority. When you hear Jesus, you experience not only the one sent by God, but the very breath of God Himself. Jesus is the Word. Have you read that somewhere else in the Gospel of John? Oh, maybe at the very beginning. Jesus is the breath of God that speaks. It means to exhale or to breathe out. When Jesus speaks, He is the very expressive Word of God. Uh, have you ever been with someone when they've had too much garlic the night before? Right? And you know when they speak to you in the morning, it's like, and they, they're all really expresses and they love to enunciate. Right? It's like you feel that, right? Okay, now flip that around to someone who's got really sweet breath. And you can feel their breath when they're talking to you. you can, right? There's that, that sense of it actually impacts how you, who you are. That's who Jesus is. He's the very breath of God. And once again, yes, I knew you were wondering, when he speaks, it's a present active indicative. In other words, Jesus didn't just all of a sudden start speaking. 
when he arrived on the scene, how long has he been the breath of God? How long has he spoken the breath of God? From eternity past into this very moment and continuing on for all eternity. He has always been the very breath of God. Amen. We're wondering when you guys are going to wake up. There's no starting point, no beginning to this breath. It's eternal, continuous, transcendent. Jesus is the breath of God. He's the divine Word of God, sent forth, made flesh, to proclaim God's truth to us. It's the echo of the start of John's Gospel, John 1, where he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made. Jesus is the very Word of God, always and for all times and in all places. To hear Him and heed Him is to experience the eternal breath of God. To listen and obey Him is to have eternity speak into your life, to give you life. To receive and respond to Jesus is to receive and respond to the person of God himself. D.A. Carson, who does write a short paragraph on this particular chapter, says this, Jesus so completely says and does all that God says and does, and only what God says and does, he so completely says that, that to believe in Jesus is to believe God himself. And that's John's point. When we hear Jesus, believe it or not, you hear the words of God. Jesus is, he is the breath, the word of God made manifest among us. Here's a second part of this that I discovered. That Jesus is intimately acquainted with God, the Holy Spirit. The passage says he gives the Spirit without measure. Well, who gives the Spirit without measure? Does Jesus give it or does the Father give it? Well, in context, it's the Father. He's the object. The Father gives the Spirit to who? To the one he sent. That is Jesus without measure. And again, guess what it is? Yes, it is. It's another present active indicative. You have just been waiting for these to come for a year now. Present active indicative. He's always giving the Spirit to Jesus. Always since He was incarnated. Always since the Spirit fell on Him. No, 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 no. Always, for all time, in all places, in all situations, and all eternity. How long does Jesus have the Holy Spirit? He's always had the Holy Spirit. He gives, He pours out, He bestows, He participates in for all time and all places, eternity past and eternity future in an intimate fullness with the Holy Spirit. It's a revelation of the intricate familiarity between Jesus and the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit. Without measure He gives the Spirit, without boundary, limitation, portion, or restraint. The way the Son of God receives the Spirit of God is measureless and infinite without any boundaries. In as many ways as he can experience the Spirit, he's experienced him. In as many ways as he can partake of the Spirit, he's, he's shared with him. For all time and beyond, he has known the Spirit of God. As fully as the Spirit can be known and enjoyed and experienced, Jesus knows and enjoys and experiences the fullness of the Holy Spirit so beautiful it is this intimacy with the spirit that empowers jesus for his earthly ministry and it is this intimacy with the spirit that raises jesus from the dead 
See, John wants us to understand the superlative person of Jesus. He is intimately acquainted with the Spirit of God. If I had more time, I'd take you through other passages where, where, where the, Jesus is mentioned, the Spirit of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is mentioned, and they are intertwined. You can't tell one from the other. Why? Because they've been intimately acquainted for all eternity. The Holy Spirit of God and Jesus, the breath of God, have always been intertwined. Jesus is the breath of God, the Word made flesh, and He's intimately acquainted, eternally engaged with the Spirit of God, without limit, without measure, without beginning, without end, so much so that you can't speak of one without speaking of the other. Here's the third thing I discovered. For the sake of time, I should move on. That Jesus is infused with the eternal love of the Father. Verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The Father loves the Son. Yes, 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 it is. I know, I know. I can see those hands going up. It's another present active indicative. How long has the Father loved the Son? Always. How long will the Father love the Son? Forever, for always. The Father loves the Son selflessly, sacrificially, and unconditionally. John Piper writes this, that the agape love of the Father is the embodiment of His nature in the Son. When the, when the Father pours out His love into the Son, He embodies Himself in the Son. The Father loves the Son. That phrase declares the unbreakable bond of intimacy that Jesus has with His Father. It unites him in a relationship for and from eternity. If you were to continue to read in John in particular, he says many, many times, I and the Father am one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The superlative person of Jesus is fleshed out here for our consideration. Jesus is the very breath of God, the Word that came from heaven. Jesus possesses the very Spirit of God without limit, measure, or boundary. And He is infused with the endless love of God, the love of the Father, so much so that He is the love of God incarnate in our lives. And I feel like I've failed miserably in trying to help you understand because it's one of those infathomable mysteries. So let me just quote from Colossians 2, because this is the best I can do. For in him, it says, as Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And that's what John is saying. You can't talk about Jesus without wrestling with his superlative person. He is God incarnate. Believe it or not. And then I want to just share a few moments about the superlative authority of Jesus. Verses 31 and 35. 35 says this, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. But before that, 31. Just a reminder about the absolute superiority, the superlative nature of Jesus. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. And then it goes on to say, he who comes from heaven is above all. And what John wants us to understand is that Jesus has priority over everyone and everything. 
And it's helpful to remember our place in the presence of Jesus, to acknowledge His superiority. And whether you do or not, it doesn't change His superiority. He is above all. This is how Colossians frames it. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Jesus is from above and above all. But he also has absolute authority. He's superlative in his authority. The Father has given all things into his hand. And guess what given is? Oh yes, I knew you'd want to know. Another present active indicative. So when did the Father give authority to Jesus? Always had authority. He has the full force of the Trinity. He's always had authority. Full authority given to Him. All things, by the way, have been given to Him. There's nothing that is not in His control. The word into His hands literally is into His control. And it comes with the idea of not only possession, but also power. The power to dispose of what He has as He pleases. He's got the whole world in His hand. And I'd break into song for fear that you would never invite me back. I won't. Right? But it's so true here. How much authority does Jesus yield? John wants to understand. All authority. Absolute authority. Whether it's recognized authority or not. And who's accountable to this one that has authority? To Jesus? Everyone. Everywhere. For all time. Jesus holds absolute purview that is oversight control and authority over everyone and he always has and he always will let me read for you ephesians 1 that might be helpful jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And in case you're wondering what Jesus thought about himself, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. See, Jesus wants us to understand as well. He has full authority. Jesus is and holds ultimate authority, regardless of whether you believe it. It's true. You may not believe believe that the police officer who's chasing you down the freeway has authority to pull you over, but I dare you to keep driving and see how much authority he actually holds. Spike Belt have a wonderful way of reminding you. In him and him alone, is absolute authority. Authority to forgive sin, authority to extend or withhold eternal life, and authority over access to the Father. This is what Jesus says about himself. I am the way. The only way. I am the truth. The only truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. 
Later on he says this, The words I say I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, who does His work. In other words, Jesus says, I have the full authority of the Father. He gave it to me. When John was old, John the Gospel writer was old, and he was in exile, he had a vision from Jesus. And Revelation chapter 1 tells us about his vision. And here's what Jesus said to John. I am the first and the last. I hold all authority. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I live forevermore. And then he says, I have the keys of death and Hades. Here's the crux of the matter. That Jesus holds authority over life and death itself. In him lies the fulcrum for eternity. Eternity, your eternity, and my eternity hinges on what you do with Jesus. On how you respond to Jesus. He holds the keys to life and death. And that leads to my final point, and I'll I'll close with this. The pivotal determination about Jesus. See, if it's true that Jesus has all authority and that he holds authority over life and death, that in the end he can determine what to do with us, his created beings. It's important that we understand who he is. And that's why John takes time to encapsulate these deep truths of Jesus at the end of this chapter. So let me proclaim to you just one more time the truth of Jesus. Let me declare to you the superlative origin and person and authority of Jesus because how you respond to what you heard comes with consequences and not just temporal consequences but eternal consequences. Let me read the passage again. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He, that is Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For, in, for he whom God has sent utters the very breath of God, and God gives Jesus the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I started this morning talking about Dragon's Den or Shark's Tank and there's this wonderful part in each show at the very end where the entrepreneurs have to, or the, the dragons or sharks, have to determine how they'll respond to what they've heard. And the response usually goes one of two ways. You'll see the dragons try to negotiate a deal. Or you'll hear them declare this phrase, I'm out. Or, to quote Kevin O'Leary, you're dead to me. And in essence, that's what John wants us to understand is that really we have one of two responses to Jesus. The response is to not negotiate the deal, because God will not negotiate, but to accept the deal. And the deal is really simple. The deal is this, that if you believe that Jesus is the one sent by God, and if you believe that he died in your place 
and paid the penalty for your sin and that death could not hold him, but he rose again from the dead and now sits gloriously in heaven and he is extending to you out of his glorious power righteousness that is his in place for your sin. If you believe that, you have life. You have life eternal. You have moved from dirt to glory. But if you say, you're dead to me, you'll hear those words echoed back by Jesus. Because apart from Jesus, we're dead. We're not just wounded. We're not just struggling, not just trying to figure out. We are dirt. And dirt needs God to breathe life into it. And that's why John spends this entire chapter helping us understand that Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Let me read for you 1 John chapter 5. Same author, a little later. And you'll discover that this theme has been a life verse for him. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. And whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and that this life is in his Son. And whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And what John wants us to understand, both in this passage and just the one I read, was that eternity divides along the lines of how you respond to Jesus. Those who fix their seal and affirm the truth of what Jesus declares affirm that God is true, trustworthy, reliable. And by the way, the idea of fixing your seal in the ancient world was to have a document that you verified was accurate and true. And you would put your seal on it. And as you put your seal on it, you would also put on it your reputation and your future. Because if you lied, you were dead. You would fix your seal on it. You would put all that you are into it, believing wholly in it. And that's what John is saying. Those who say that Jesus... Jesus' declaration, His testimony is true, fix their seal on Him. And fixing their seal on Him, discover that He seals them with the Spirit and they have eternal life. But He says this, the one who does not receive does not have life. The one who says that Jesus is not true bears the wrath of God. Whoever does not obey the Son, it's an interesting word, whoever believes in the Son has life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but has the wrath of God. Interesting phrase here. The phrase obey literally means to willfully refuse to comply with the demands of an authority over you. An overt rejection of authority. A determination to say that you are superior over Jesus. A determination to say that you are superior over Jesus' 
person, his authority, and his dominion. A definitive determination to say that the truth, your truth, trumps the truth of God. And if I could just refer you back to Genesis, that's where it all began. Where God declared his truth to his people. And they chose to go it on their own way. And in essence, what the serpent convinced Adam and Eve to do was to call God a liar. Did God really say you'll die? No, no, no. He was lying to you. He knows if you eat from the fruit, you'll become like him. And God will not be mocked. That's why he sent the truth of his son to share with us the wonder of what it means to have a relationship with him. When we willfully refuse Jesus, we determine to embrace death, to fix our seal that God is a liar and not to be trusted. And in the process, we determine to remain under his wrath. A wrath that was poured out because of our sin. But let me say this as I close. A wrath that was averted in the person of Jesus. the Son of God who was sent into the world to reveal God's truth to us and not only reveal God's truth to us, to bear and pay the penalty for sin, to die in our place, to feel the full force of God's wrath on him so that we might understand the full force of life through him. I said I'm not here to convince you, but I lied. Because I'm not your pastor anymore and I can do that. But Pastor Matt never does, just so we're clear. I don't know where you are with Jesus. I just don't. I think I know where some of you are, but I just don't for others. And here's the thing. Jesus is the only way to God. I declare that to you. He is the truth from heaven. He is God, the Word of God, that is being spoken by the Father who loves you and longs for you to come out from under His wrath and to come into His grace and to discover in the person of Jesus life eternal. So whatever you do today, do not leave without doing business with Jesus. Because to do so is to go to death. And if you have life in Jesus, live that way. Right? Come under the fullness of his authority. Submit yourself to the truth of his word. And give him priority in all that you are and all that you do. Because that's who he is and what he deserves. I love you. <sighs> Thanks for letting me share this morning. I love you. I love the word and I long to see you faithful to Jesus. Let's pray. God, your word is true. It's powerful. And it teaches us that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. 
but that you sent your son to die a horrible death on a cross so that we might live. You know how fallible we are. And yet, just as you did at the beginning, you you offered to breathe life into us through your Son, the very breath of God. I would pray today that you would make us bold to take up your invitation and to move from death and wrath to life and grace and discover in you the wonder of what it means to truly come alive. I pray for my, my friends. I pray for myself. May we be faithful to you in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen.